Hello, and welcome to episode five of Top Class, the OECD's education podcast. My name is Henry, and I work in the OECD Directorate for Education and Skills. On this episode, we're going to be talking about what preparing and training teachers and school leaders is like in a modern world that's as complex and uncertain as the one we're living in. And to discuss this, I'm very pleased to be joined by Hannah von Alfeld and David Liebowitz, who are both analysts here at the OECD and who are both former teachers and school leaders in Australia and the US, respectively. Thank you both for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you very much. So drawing from both your work at the OECD and your experiences as uh, former teachers and school leaders, what do you think are the biggest challenges for training teachers and school leaders in the 21st century? What I mean by that is what is likely to be different from, say, 20 years ago? David, I'll start with you. Sure. Thanks so much for having the chance to talk about this. Um, I, I think probably the best way to start talking about it is just to talk about my own experiences and then generalize maybe a little bit from there. So like you mentioned, I was a teacher for several years. Then I did work supporting schools in their professional development work. And then after an intensive four-day-a-week, year-long residency with a strong mentor or principal, uh, became the principal of a 550 or so student school in a low-income community in Massachusetts. The work was exhilarating and exciting, and I grew tremendously from it, uh, and it was extremely hard also. Uh, and some just sort of taste of what a day might look like, it might range from very operational implementation-type work, ensuring that students' transitions were smooth, that the uh, cafeteria staff was doing what they needed to do, making sure that students were behaving appropriately in class and taking responsibility for their actions, all the way up to coaching teachers for instructional improvement and leading school-wide improvement plans with focused in-school professional development on various topics and managing all these different things at once. The real challenge as I see it is that we increasingly ask schools to do more and more. And we ask students to be able to accomplish more and more. Uh, there's some really interesting recent research that's come out suggesting that the demands in the workplace on um, young people will grow increasingly in the cognitive domains, but even more so in the social skills domains. And so that means that we need to be using increasingly complex pedagogies where students are asked to persist over the long term on rigorous, challenging cognitively complex tasks, and also learn how to work well together in groups. At the same time, there are some parallel trends with growing levels of economic inequality, growing rates of economic isolation in schools, increasing concentrations of children who have suffered trauma or adverse childhood events, who then manifest in the classroom in uh, difficult to manage behaviors. So for teachers, for school leaders, stepping into that context and leading a school or leading a classroom where at the same time that we're asking them to implement innovative pedagogical strategies, they're faced with these increasing challenges in the composition and the past trauma that students have faced makes for a challenging recipe. So I think that, at least from my perspective, uh, I was as prepared as one could be, but that still wasn't enough heading into the, into the position of a school leader. And I think that's true of what many teachers feel as well. So this, is, I think, is a great opportunity to have a conversation about how do we prepare teachers and school leaders well, uh, but also how do we 
continue to provide the supports as they grow into positions over time so they can learn and improve and, and work together collaboratively. And Hannah, you were a teacher in Australia. Did you see some of the same trends that, that David's talking about? It's interesting, actually. Uh, I'm leading this project on initial teacher preparation in eight countries. Uh, those countries are Australia, uh, Japan, Netherlands, Norway, Korea, the United States, Saudi Arabia and Wales. They're all very different systems, but they're all undergoing a lot of reform in initial teacher education. So when I went back to Australia after 20 years really out of teaching, I was surprised to actually sort of talk to new teachers um, and talk to school leaders and find that there are a lot of similarities between what they were saying and what I had experienced um, in teacher training and as a new teacher. I think one of the biggest challenges in general, and we have a lot of good data on this, is that there is always a divide between the theory, what we're learning in initial teacher education, and practice, what happens when we hit the, the, the field, when we hit the classrooms. Now, I felt well prepared when I was doing my initial teacher education um, because I had very strong subject knowledge. I was coming in with four years of, uh, of a degree and a higher degree in several fields. Um, I had very good practicum experience as part of my initial teacher education, which isn't necessarily the case in all countries. Uh, I had very good mentors who enabled me to reflect on my practice when I was a practice teacher. So when I went into teaching, I felt very well prepared, but really nothing can prepare you for teaching. Classroom management is, is one big challenge, I think, for all teachers. And again, in the field, in all countries, I heard this again and again. Classroom management is, is one of the greatest challenges. How do I cope with this? Now, in my, as part of my initial teacher education and as part of my practical experience, I had a lot of help managing classrooms. But again, when you're by yourself in the classroom, it's very, very challenging. And that's why it's very important to have mentors, to have formal mentoring and induction programs to support new teachers, to help them cope with these kinds of challenges. And again, in some countries, this kind of induction is mandatory. In others, it's not. There is a lot of informal induction going on. Again, we have very good statistics uh, that we collect as part of our TALIS Teaching and Learning International Survey study. TALIS is uh, conducted every five years. The first survey of teachers we did in 2008. Uh, the next one we did in 2013. We're going into the field again this year, 2018. We'll have data for you next year. We have some good questions on initial teacher education and uh, on, on how new teachers are supported in over 40 countries. And of the countries you visited uh, and the countries that you're assessing uh, in the data, which have the most promising teacher training programs? Do, do any stand out in your mind and, and why? I think it's important, rather than pick a country, I will pick a country anyway, what's important to say that no system is perfect. Of the eight systems we've looked at, there is no perfect system. And the reason why there is no perfect system is that we talk about initial teacher preparation as a system. So it is more than what you're learning as part of initial teacher education. It's also how you're supported as a new teacher. And it's also about, as David was saying, how teachers are supported along their careers. It's all about their professional growth and development. So that's how we have to think about, about teaching as a system. So there, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen a country where this system this sort of these connections between IT and induction and, and continued professional development are made. But there are some promising practices in, for example, the Netherlands, 
When we do see, for example, they have a very, very difficult time with teacher shortage. Teacher shortage is an issue in every single country. And so what they're trying to do is to introduce lateral routes to teaching. They're also, they have registration of teacher educators. And that's the first country we've seen teacher educators being formally registered, having to have, have um, achieved a certain uh, number of skills in order to, to be a teacher educator, which is very important for supporting new teachers. They also have accredited school-university partnerships. Again, this is something we haven't seen. So that means when you're studying in your initial teacher education program, you know that the school that you're going to be doing your practical with is going to be have a very good relationship with your university. And that's very important in terms of ensuring the quality of initial teacher education. And David, before you became a school leader, Hannah was just talking earlier about the importance of induction and mentoring just so we have kind of an in-country example, what was your preparation for being a school leader in the US? What did it look like? Yeah, I think this is a really great question that speaks to the idiosyncratic ways that a lot of leaders are prepared in the US uh, especially, but certainly in other countries too, which is that there are lots of different pathways into becoming a school leader, some of which involve working full-time as a teacher and finding a few hours on the side to take on some administrative roles within the school while pursuing graduate classes. Uh, It's very difficult to get the authentic experience of being a school leader while you're also teaching full-time. You don't get the same kind of experience that an actual school leader does. Other pathways involve a traditional principal preparation program where you mix a university master's degree with a series of leadership courses and a applied internship that usually involves about two days a week shadowing a school principal. And then there are also much more intensive principal residency programs where candidates might spend four or even five days a week, sometimes even fully paid in those positions uh, while taking some additional graduate classes on the side, working with a high-skill veteran principal, and some of those even are a multi-year process. Uh, In my particular case, I was sort of able to build my own, essentially, residency where I was in graduate school and was able to free up time to be able to do that sort of model of four days a week in a school, worked with a very accomplished and high-quality mentor and felt I learned a lot from that. Uh, the, the tricky thing is that that's a very significant investment, and the impact evaluations, for instance, of the New York City Leadership Academy or even New Leaders for New Schools in the United States demonstrate at best mixed results. Um, even the, the most optimistic measurements of those programs suggest that principals in the New Leaders program might increase student performance by one and a half percentile points, uh, which for the amount of financial investment in it may not in fact be worth it. So I I think there are lots of colleagues at the OECD who are experts in some of the mechanisms internationally by which different systems prepare principles. Uh, And in fact, there's a whole series of work led by colleagues Beatrice Pont and Deborah Noosh in the 2000s who examined principal preparation programs in many different countries, highlighting examples in Singapore, where there's a very rigorous system for selection of a group of assistant principals or Ministry of Education officials who then are selected into a paid year-long program where they mix applied experience interning in schools with also visiting 
they, they are paid to travel to other countries and visit their school leaders and learn from them. They have ongoing networks that they can learn from over time. Uh, and these are, I think, all very valuable practices that should be highlighted. At the same time, there's also very strong evidence that indicates that no matter what sort of preparation you receive, that the start of your career as a school leader is a very challenging one. And so I think you can be poorly prepared to become a school leader. I think it's hard to be well prepared to be a school leader. I don't think you're ever really ready to be a school leader. And that, I think, speaks to the importance of building networks of practice where people are supported by peers, by experienced uh, school leaders, where they can grow over time into the position. Look, it, it, this is, I don't think, there is no technocratic solution to this. We don't know exactly what makes for a good principal, a good school leader, or how to do that well. This, by definition, has to be a process of improvement over time, a process of learning over time. And so I think the best systems are ones in which school leaders are well-connected with each other, with successful mentor leaders, where they can grow and learn over time. And I think there are some models out there of uh, systems that are doing this well. Ontario, the Netherlands are, are some examples. But I think, again, um, we don't quite know what are the specific elements that make for the most effective networks, make for the most effective systems of collaboration. So I think that bears further study. Are there any practices for teacher and school leader training, so this is for both of you from your experiences, that keep happening that are dead wrong, that countries are doing and keep doing for traditional or whatever other reason, and they should stop? Hannah, what do you think? Well, I think, I mean, I think we really lack the evidence base in initial teacher education actually about what good ITE is. I think we have an idea about how, about the initial teacher preparation system and how things should work in alignment. For example, the national curriculum. Um, I think one thing that really concerns me is when I see countries who have revised their national curricula to integrate what we would call the skills, values and attitudes for 2030. Um, we have a program on that at the OECD. The national curricula which are really forging ahead when really trying to prepare kids for the future. But then I go to initial teacher education institutions and I see really there it's not reflected in teacher education. So really I think we really need to think about teacher education in alignment with national curriculum and also in alignment with accreditation of initial teacher education systems. So in order to be accredited as an initial teacher education provider, one must be able to show that they are able to align with, with new national curricula and really what people need to know and, and to teach to prepare students for the next century or two. <laughs> On the leadership end of things, I think that rightly so, there's been a growing focus on the value of school leaders as instructional leaders. That means both at the individual support level for teachers to be able to coach and develop them over the trajectory of their careers, but also in terms of organizing group learning and school system improvements. Those are certainly critical. And I think there's been a shift to focusing on those in preparation of school leaders. But running a school is also a very complex management task. And we put school leaders who are responsible in some senses for an entire organization. They are, in essence, the CEOs of their unit. And we don't 
provide them with sufficient level of management and operational strategies to improve the systems in schools. And the reality is, is that if you can't successfully manage and operate in efficient, logical ways, a very complex, highly decentralized organization like a school is, then you can't get to the more complex instructional improvement strategies. So I think that there is a disconnect between the world of higher education and the world of schools in terms of understanding what does it actually take to manage and lead a school. So I think a deeper partnership between institutions of higher education and the school systems that they're serving to be able to balance these two approaches, to be able to, in essence, operationalize what does being an instructional leader look like in the day-to-day reality of a school. That's a really good point. I mean, we call them feedback loops. And, And we don't see in countries we've looked at so many feedback loops, but there are some really impressive examples of, of how initial teacher education has improved, how the programs have improved because of uh, very good relationships with schools and with boards of education, with those who hire teachers. And again, it's the strengths of those partnerships that lead to improvement. In 20 years from now, how do you see initial teacher education changing? Is it going to look drastically different from, from today? What I found really interesting, and that you touched on before, David, is the sense that when I'm talking to teachers, and and this is nothing new, but there's a sense that teachers are very, they are overburdened, and they're even more so because they're having to cope with more and more, and the expectations of them are growing, are growing, uh, growing a lot. And there's there's an accent now on on the well-being of teachers and general well-being in, in the population. So I think that, that in the future, there's going to be a, 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 lot, a, a larger drive, a larger focus on the aspect of, of teacher well-being. We're already seeing in some aspects of, of policy, in fact, and you touched on it before as a school leader. So in some countries, new teachers, for example, um, they get some time off in lieu of focusing on sort of other more sort of PD aspects of, of, of their time. So uh, you know, I think, I hope in the future, there'll be sort of a lot more mindfulness, if you like, in terms of, of, of teacher well-being. Yeah, I think that I hope that there will be a growing focus on how do we continue to see opportunities for school leaders to act as innovators and entrepreneurs and celebrate and support that experimentation and growth uh, without making them feel like middle managers caught between uh, directives from above and supporting the needs of the school itself. I think that many school systems want school leaders to find new strategies and new approaches to addressing the challenges that their students face, but there are not very many incentives in place for them to be innovative and experimental. I also think that we need to continue to reconceptualize what school leadership means. There is growing emphasis on the value of distributed leadership and having more people responsible for the strategic direction of schools. And that can't all fall on a single figure or even a a small group of formally identified leaders. So that's a critical challenge for school leaders of the future is how to successfully mobilize and develop a shared vision amongst uh, faculty to lead and innovate. And I think that there is a challenging resource 
decision that will need to be made. And this is part of the work that I'm involved with on the school resources review team that um, we are looking at these questions of human resource management is there sometimes can be a zero-sum game between resources that are directed immediately towards the classroom in the form of teachers and those that exist around teachers to support their development over time. And so I think one of the challenges that we see in our work is how do we support school systems to think about these tough decisions between providing some additional out-of-classroom resources, whether that means school social workers, psychologists, even something as simple as an operations manager who can take some of the incredibly long list of tasks that principals are responsible for uh, and allow them to focus on the strategic areas that they think they can be most successful. In the U.S., the most recent data is that the average school principal, and I'm talking now across everything from primary through secondary in all sorts of settings, works 60 hours a week. And that's the average. And that means that in some cases, they're working significantly more than that. And I was just in Portugal, where school principals can sometimes be responsible, in fact, in a school cluster for up to 25 schools. And they there also are working incredibly long hours. So the question is, is that the most effective use of their time? And is there a way that they can distribute those hours across some other staff members who can take on some of these challenges, perhaps be more effective because they're specializing in them, leaving them some of the more strategic leadership aspects of the role. Of course, you have to balance that with the sense among many teachers that they are facing increasingly complex challenges in their classrooms. And so the desire exists for having more teachers to, to support students. Um, so these are some of the, I think, future challenges that school systems will have to figure out. Do either of you ever miss teaching? Would you go back? I miss teaching a lot. Um, I have my own kids and through them I'm able to sort of, I actually take some of their classes sometimes and try and establish relationships mm -hmm. with the, their school principals. Again, some countries, you know, I've lived in a few countries, it's easy to do that in some countries rather than others, but I would love to go back to teaching. But it's a very it's very different out there compared to 20 years ago. There's a lot more challenges. We didn't talk too much about the use of technology in the classroom. That hasn't come up actually a lot in our reviews, but it's something that's really, really important. And even as opportunities, you know, with the professional learning communities that are being used increasingly as kind of, you know, informal support for teachers, for new teachers, for, you know, these are very powerful tools. And it's really can be a very exciting place if, you know, you actually have time and the opportunity to be able to, to use these tools in the classroom today. I was a principal for five years. A lot of the work was rewarding. Sometimes it was challenging. I think the happiest moments are when, in a pinch, I had to fill in for a teacher who was absent for a class or two, and I got to have the experience of being back in the classroom teaching a group of kids. Teaching is one of the most challenging jobs and one of the most rewarding. And there's nothing like seeing light bulbs pop on above some kids' heads or having a kid who really struggled with the content, with you, and you felt like maybe you didn't quite make a difference, and then they come back at the end of the year, and maybe it's not till the next year, and say, wow, I really, you know, I gave you a hard time, but I'm really glad I was in your class. There are some really 
wonderful, amazing teachers out there. I miss being a teacher. And I think that whatever we can do as a society to support the development and growth and prioritization of the teaching profession, I think is something that will build our nations in many dimensions in the future. Here, here. <laughs> well, I think unfortunately we've we've just about run out of time, but I want to thank both David and Hannah for joining me. And thank you to everybody for listening. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please remember to subscribe and share the podcast. And don't forget to follow the OECD Education Twitter account, which can be found at OECD Edu Skills, as well as our Education and Skills Today blog at OECD Education Today.blogspot.com. And thanks everybody. Until next time.